0: From New England Public Radio in Springfield, Massachusetts, this is NEPR News Now. Stories you really should not miss. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Hunsick. Coming up, as white nationalists, step up their recruitment efforts on college campuses, school administrators in New England grapple with some tough choices.
1: Some students are very concerned about how safe this uh, campus is for them, especially students who belong to underrepresented groups, and other students are concerned about whether or not we're going to take an approach where we are going to be silencing certain ideas.
0: A balance of safety and speech. Then Canadian law seems to encourage those seeking asylum to get there by crossing illegally through the woods. And they're coming from the U.S. It's a complicated result of an agreement between the two countries that some say needs to end.
2: The basic argument is that the U.S. doesn't respect the Refugee Convention or the Convention Against Torture.
0: And a commentary from a Mount Holyoke student who was devastated by the presidential election results but has no interest in protest marches.
3: Much as I hate to say it. I predict this desire to stand up to President Trump will fizzle out, like the failed movement occupy Wall Street.
0: Yeah, we might get some letters about that one. All that good stuff and more just ahead on NEPR News Now. But first, the verdicts were mixed for the former co-owner of a Framingham, Massachusetts compounding pharmacy. The New England Compounding Center prepared medicine linked to a fungal meningitis outbreak in 2012. Sixty-four people died, and hundreds around the country were injured and sickened. W. B. U. R. Steve Brown was in Boston Federal Court when the verdicts were read.
4: Barry Cadden sat upright at the defense table, showing no emotion as the court clerk read from the lengthy jury verdict form. Racketeering count one, guilty. Racketeering count two, guilty. Racketeering count three, Guilty. It wasn't until 24 guilties later, the clerk got to the most serious crimes, second-degree murder. The clerk read each name of 25 victims, followed by the words, not guilty. The acquittals on those acts spare the 50-year-old Cadden from a possible life sentence. Still, by the time the jury filed out of courtroom 21, Cadden was convicted of racketeering, conspiracy, and mail fraud. Despite the verdicts, his attorney, Bruce Single, said Cadden is mindful of the victims of what he describes as a terrible public health tragedy.
2: It was a death case, as we said, but not a murder case. And uh, Barry is very conscious in the flurry of excitement over the verdict that we not forget the people who have suffered terribly uh, during this ordeal. Uh, the people who have lost loved ones, and Barry's thoughts and prayers uh, remain with them
4: throughout. The outbreak began back in 2012 when reports began appearing around the country of patients with fungal meningitis and other infections. An investigation revealed that all of the patients had been injected with steroid compounds that had been mixed at and shipped from the NECC facility in Framingham. There, regulators would go on to find mold, bacteria, and expired ingredients. Prosecutors claim NECC boosted production by ignoring regulations on cleanliness and sterility. The facility was closed and criminal charges were brought against executives and pharmacists at the company. Among the accusations brought by federal prosecutors were the 25 acts of second-degree murder, Those acts enabled them to seek the racketeering charges. Defense attorney Single says that was an overreach.
2: Murder is the worst crime known to humanity, and it is a terrible injustice that Barry Cadden was labeled with this charge by the government for more than two years. It is a disgrace that he was charged with murder. It was unprovable, unwarranted, and unjustified, and we are deeply grateful that the jury saw it that way and vindicated Mr. Cadden on all 25 of the murder charges.
4: Yeah, uh, we disagree with that. Acting U.S. Attorney William Weinreb has a different view.
2: I think that the charges were well-founded. I think that over the course of two months, the jury saw uh, evidence that, in our view, was sufficient to prove him guilty of those charges beyond a reasonable doubt. We respect the jury's role in this process and we respect their verdict. Uh, but we certainly do not think this case was overcharged.
4: Weinreb says the government is gratified by the verdicts, adding that Cadden placed profits over patients.
2: This trial revealed that, that among other things, Mr. Cadden uh, participated in a massive fraud in which NECC masqueraded as a pharmacy when it was, in fact, manufacturing drugs. And as a result of that, he managed to escape FDA oversight of his actions... And all of that uh, was laid out over the course of two months. All of that is reflected in the jury's verdict.
4: For the survivors of the outbreak, the verdict brings some sense of closure. Army Major Adam Ziegler of Fort Stewart, Georgia, got a tainted steroid injection in his sacroiliac joint after he was injured during parachute jump training. He told WBUR's Radio Boston he feels justice has been done.
2: As far as... You know, whether it's anyone's ever going to be made whole in this or whether if he'd have been found guilty of 25 counts of second degree murder, if it would make me feel any better, um, it it really wouldn't matter.
4: Major Ziegler says he's being medically separated from the military and that even sitting is uncomfortable, but he's doing the best he can.
2: He's going to be punished um, and all the rest of us are still going to have to go on with our lives as, as, uh, as wherever we are, either without somebody or... Um, you know, dealing with whatever pain or injury we have for the rest of our lives.
4: A civil suit brought by outbreak victims was settled for $200 million. Federal prosecutors plan to move ahead with trials of other NECC executives and pharmacists. Another trial for former NECC supervisory pharmacist Glenn Chin gets underway next month. Cadden's lawyer says they will appeal yesterday's guilty verdicts. Cadden will remain free until he is sentenced in June could face up to 20 years, though such a long sentence is unlikely. For New England Public Radio, I'm Steve Brown in Boston.
0: Hate groups are on the rise in the U.S., and they increasingly see college campuses as prime recruiting ground. UMass Amherst and Holyoke Community College are just two of dozens of college campuses to have been targeted by white nationalist propaganda in recent months. As Katherine Davis Young reports, finding the right way to respond to these groups can present a challenge to college administrators.
1: The flyers that appeared recently in a parking lot at UMass Amherst and on bulletin boards at Holyoke Community College showed black-and-white photos of European statues, like Michelangelo's David, with slogans like, Let's become great again and protect your heritage. It's the white nationalist group behind the flyers that has the schools concerned. They call themselves Identity Europa. They require members to be of European non-Semitic heritage, They take extreme views on immigration, and they promote pseudo-scientific theories about differences between races.
2: Many of these groups are feeling emboldened by the current political climate, and they are using the environment as a way to attempt to recruit college students.
1: Robert Treston is the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League. The organization recently issued a report showing white nationalist groups have scaled up their recruiting efforts at colleges and universities. Racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-Muslim flyers have been found on more than 100 campuses across the country since last
2: fall. It's important for leadership on campuses to make it very, very clear that their campuses do not represent these views, and these kind of views are not welcome on their campus.
1: But how schools choose to respond can raise concerns, too, says Azhar Majid, with FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, a free speech watchdog group.
2: What I hope not to see on college campuses is for uh, for universities to to respond by saying that Uh, Certain types of speech, even though they're protected by the First Amendment, will be subject to censorship or punishment.
1: Finding a balance between rejecting discrimination while allowing for free speech is exactly what Holyoke Community College faced when flyers appeared on its campus this month. Janina Vargas-Ariaga is the college's vice president for student affairs. Some students are very concerned about how safe this uh, campus is for them, especially students who belong to underrepresented groups that are being targeted by these uh, organizations. And other students are concerned about whether or not we're going to take an approach where we are going to be silencing certain ideas." Ultimately, Holyoke Community College decided to address the incident with a school-wide email from the college president, which outlined a commitment to diversity and respectful exchange of ideas. Vargas Arriaga says HCC is also planning to host events on campus to reiterate those messages. And colleges around the country facing these situations have had a range of reactions. When white supremacist flyers were left outside the offices of African-American faculty at Indiana University, the school notified the FBI. The president of UT Austin hosted a town hall meeting in response to anti-Muslim flyers that appeared at that school. At UMass Amherst, the Student Affairs Office reached out privately to multicultural groups on campus. UMass spokesman Ed Blagazuski says university leadership considered the group that left the flyers probably wanted to get attention and create controversy.
4: So there is a balancing act. You want to denounce absolutely the message, um, but you don't want to create so much public notice that you're advancing that agenda.
1: At both UMass and Holyoke Community College, most of the flyers were left in places where flyers aren't allowed to be posted regardless of content. So they were quickly removed. Neither school knows who posted them either. And Vargas Ariaga says there's a big difference between that kind of messaging and students backing up their own ideas and presenting them respectfully. Anonymous speech has no standing in our community. But when you stand behind your thoughts and your ideas, then we will sit down and engage. Exchanging ideas, she says, is what college is all about. For New England Public Radio, I'm Katherine Davis-Young.
0: Many recent immigrants living in the U.S. are scared that their claims for asylum won't have a fair hearing by the Trump administration. That includes people who could be killed if they're deported back to their home countries. Hundreds of those people are fleeing to Canada, and some have taken drastic measures to get there. That's because of an agreement between the U.S. and Canada that inadvertently encourages people to cross illegally in the woods. Vermont Public Radio's Kathleen Masterson spoke with one man who nearly froze to death trying to flee the U.S.
5: Mamadou is 45 years old. He fled his native country, Cote d'Ivoire, 10 years ago, escaping a brutal civil war. We're not using his full name for his protection. He applied for asylum status in the U.S. but was denied. Still, U.S. authorities deemed it unsafe to return him to his country, so he says he was granted temporary permission to stay here. Back home in Cote d'Ivoire, his father was killed by rebels, and his home was burned to the ground. Mamadou worked as a taxi driver in New York City for the last decade, but at the end of February, immigration and customs enforcement agents began showing up at his home to arrest him. Mamadou says if he were to be deported back to his country, he would be killed.
1: I see I have no choice because I'm no longer safe in and going to deport me in my country and when
3: I go I'm going to be
5: killed. It's hard to hear him because he's speaking from a detention center in Quebec. But how he got to Canada is a dangerous and complex story. After the agents came to deport him, Mamadou fled New York City and made his way to the Canadian border, north of Plattsburgh, New York. When he presented himself to Canadian border authorities, they denied his asylum application for procedural reasons. That's because the Safe Third Country Agreement prohibits refugees who are already in the U.S. from applying for asylum in Canada. So the Canadian authorities turned Mamadou back to the U.S., then around 6:30 that evening,
3: I decided to walk in the forest, through Canada, and it was so cold and the
1: snow was everywhere. I don't know which direction I was going. I just was walking like that in the forest and I fall in the river two times.
5: Mamadu walked through the snowy woods and freezing temperatures for nine hours. He encountered two rivers he could find no other way around. The first was shallow, but he says the second river was deep and wide. After that crossing, he says his body became dangerously cold. It was so dark, he couldn't even see the tree branches until he felt them whip his face. He says he saw a street light in the distance, and he walked for nearly three hours before he reached the street.
1: Then I saw a stop sign reading Arete. I said, oh, Arete, that's a French wall. Maybe this is Canada.
5: At that point, he says his whole body collapsed. The rest of the story, he doesn't remember, until he woke up in a hospital
2: bed. His clothes... Uh, froze on him, basically, and they had to be cut off uh, when he was brought to the hospital.
5: That's Mamadou's lawyer, Eric Taifar. Mamadou says the police officer found him lying unconscious in the street, and after realizing he was still alive, the officer brought Mamadou to the hospital. It took six days for him to regain the ability to speak and move his limbs, during which time he was handcuffed in his hospital bed.
2: Since he officially made a claim once, he cannot claim again. So we have a a one-claim rule here uh, in Canada. So once you've made it, uh, you can't do it ever again for life.
5: Because Mamadou first approached the border in a legal fashion, presenting himself to Canadian authorities at the checkpoint, Mamadou inadvertently jeopardized his own chances of applying for asylum in Canada. If he'd simply walked through the woods first, crossing the border illegally between checkpoints, he could have arrived in Canada and made his first asylum claim then. That's what hundreds of refugees who are fleeing the U.S. are doing. But because he didn't know about the Safe Third Country Agreement, his claim was denied without ever getting a hearing in front of a judge. Stories like Mamadou's have some Canadian lawyers calling for the Safe Third Country Agreement to be revoked. Toronto attorney Jared Will recently filed a lawsuit in Canada, arguing that the agreement is illegal under Canadian law.
2: The basic argument is that the U.S. doesn't respect the Refugee Convention or the Convention Against Torture, and that it should never have been designated as a safe third country by Canada. Um, but certainly now the designation should not persist.
5: Will says there are a number of problems in how the U.S. handles refugees that could deem the country unsafe. For one, the U.S. bars people from making asylum claims if they've been in the country for over one year. If the U.S. isn't considered a safe country, then he argues Canada shouldn't be able to deny asylum seekers the right to apply in Canada simply because they already landed in the U.S.
0: Charter question, the constitutional question, is whether it's a breach of a refugee claimant's right to life, liberty, and security, the person in Canada, to deny them the right to assert a refugee claim here in circumstances where their ability to assert that claim in the United States is compromised.
5: Will's clients are a Syrian woman and her three children. Like Mamadou, they also presented themselves at a border checkpoint, not knowing about the agreement. The lawsuit is still in its infancy. Will says it could be several months before he hears back from the courts if he has an arguable case. Mamadou's lawyer is also considering challenging the safe third country agreement. And he's in talks with Attorney Jared Will about joining his lawsuit against the Canadian government. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kathleen Masterson.
0: Commentator and college senior Angelica Jarrett says her fellow students are jumping at ways to resist President Trump's policies related to science, health care, and immigration. Jarrett says she's also passionate about those issues. But don't expect to see her at any protests.
3: The day after President Trump was elected, my friends and I gathered outside Mount Holyoke's Majestic Library. We were joined by students from all over campus. A lot of people's eyes were puffy from crying. Many of us had been up most of the night. We stood in a big circle on that cold, gray, damp day. One by one, people stepped into the center and spoke. The fear about how our lives might be about to change for the worst was palpable. Months later, my fellow students are inspired— They're constantly RSVPing to Facebook invites for marches and other resistance efforts. But I'm not signing up. In the past, I would have. I'd love to feel that marching would actually do something. And I don't want to be perceived as a stickler. But I've been studying social movements. And from what I've learned, it seems that the protests my fellow students and people around the country are currently involved in are not going to get us anywhere significant. Much as I hate to say it, I predict this desire to stand up to President Trump will fizzle out like the failed movement Occupy Wall Street. The civil rights movement was one that didn't fail. One of the reasons? It had one clear and straightforward goal. It's that same strategy, a simplified message, that helps to explain how far-right parties in Europe are gaining such popularity at the moment. Right now, many Americans are riled up, and that's great. They're just not riled up about the same things. Some people are against anything Trump does, and others are focusing on very specific issues to resist. I don't know what some sort of middle ground would look like or how we find it, but that's what we need, a coalition that harnesses activists' energy and effectively directs it. Money helps, too. The Tea Party had lots of it. And access to political power is also important. The Republicans are in control of a lot. They have no reason to keep progressive activists on their radar at this point. It's the people in their own party who've got their ears. I keep thinking about that dismal November day we came together in front of Wilson Library. We were so vulnerable and held on to each other, literally, for support. It was all we could manage to do at the time, I'm afraid we haven't moved much past that since.
0: Angelica Jarrett is a senior at Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Her honors thesis on social movements is due in late April. That's the show. Thanks for listening to NEPR News Now, stories you really should not miss. This show is produced by listener-funded New England Public Radio. Please give us a rating on iTunes, and while you're there, take a look at the other podcasts from NEPR. You can support these podcasts and all the news and music NEPR delivers to your car, your home, and your phone by going to NEPR.net. It's a fancy new website. Check it out and click the bright orange donate button at the top of the page. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time.